It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 142, The Showdown at Mount Carmel. Elijah stared at the jar of oil and flour. He examined it. It barely had oil and flour in it. Every single day, the widow poured from the jars. There wasn't anything special about the jars. They were made of cooked brown clay. There was no design, no carving, no words on the jars. Are we all but jars of clay? filled with God's spirit and touched by God to do his service. He smiled at the most unusual of provisions. He remembered the ravens. He always talked to them, but they never talked back ever. But like clockwork, they arrived every day for breakfast and dinner. Every day he was trained by the Lord. He knew the provisions of God, and it was the simplest of miracles that helped him to understand the larger miracles to look forward to. He stepped out of the house into the dry, hot Mediterranean air. He smiled because there was no rain, not a drop, not a cloud for the last three years. Others complained of the drought and famine, but instead Elijah only increased in his faith. This morning the Lord had spoken that it was time for the famine to end and he was to go back to northern Israel. He knew God would provide and fulfill all of his petitions. For his God had shown his faithfulness and provision every day with the ravens, the jars of oil, and flour, and no rain for three years. He was a bit afraid at times in anticipation of this moment, but every time he felt an ounce of fear, he was reminded of the last three years of faithfulness and powerful provision being trained by the Lord. Over 600 meals served by ravens, and over a thousand servings of bread by two miracle unending jars of oil and flour. All he had to do is remind himself of these meals, and the barrenness of the land, and the dry mountainous air as a consequence of the drought. And if God could use him to raise the dead, all things were possible. When he dismissed his fears, Elijah knew he was prepared for the showdown at Mount Carmel. In a few days, Elijah will travel back to northern Israel to confront Ahab and Jezebel and end the drought over northern Israel and be the object and funnel to display the power of God for the people of Israel. All right, so we've arrived at one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, and I have lots of those, of course, and, and I'll probably say the same about the death or lack thereof Elijah's death. The power on display is going to be fantastic, and God is going to show up in a major way in this episode. The power of God will be in full display to the powers that be. By the time this is over, northern Israel will know the power of God and check out how it starts. In the third year, and we all know what that means, resurrection power, 
power to raise the dead, power of God, power encounters, revelation, power of God. 1 Kings 18. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. What's key here is that Elijah sat it out. He knew the time would come, but he waited and waited and ate the same bread and the same food and stayed inside on and waited and waited until his commanding officer, the Lord himself, said, Go confront Ahab. 1 Kings 18.2 Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets, hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we'll not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. What have I done, asked Obadiah, that you have handed your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you and swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I had a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. All right, this dialogue here is pretty loaded. The Bible introduces Obadiah, who is God's spy, in Ahab's house, and he tells Elijah about the prophets hiding in the caves. This is supposed to help Elijah, because in the next episode, we'll learn how Elijah was believing a lie at the moment that he was the only prophet remaining in northern Israel. Further, it shows to the lengths and depths Ahab was going to hunt down Elijah. He was searching all the lands, apparently says all the countries around, and even embarrassingly making foreign kings swear as to the truth of where Elijah was located. So Obadiah leads Elijah to Ahab. 1 Kings 18.18 I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. All right, Ahab receives the challenge, and Jezebel seems suspiciously absent. She doesn't like true face-to-face confrontation, or she was somewhere at the time. We don't know for sure, but Ahab is good with this confrontation. It appears he only brings the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah do not go with Ahab. 1 Kings 18.20 So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. 
All right, this is just powerful, powerful, powerful. How long will you waver between two opinions? Uh, that, I mean, that's a sermon by any preacher. How long will you waver between death and life, sin and life, darkness and light? How long will you waver between two opinions? The people's response was uh, silence, probably because of fear. The king was there and the false prophets were there, and they could have killed them for saying anything against them. Got to picture this. Here is Elijah, and opposite him was 450 prophets of Baal on a mountaintop, and the king was there with the 450 prophets. Surely his soldiers and armed guard were there around him with Obadiah, and all around all of them was the people, and it must have been in the thousands the number of people watching. Check out Elijah's statement. It will explain the next episode. Despite all of God's power about to flow through Elijah, He's still motivated by a subtle yet very powerful lie. 1 Kings 18.22 Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So this is super important. He's motivated by it, but also limited by it. At the point of extreme exhaustion in the next episode, He's not able to fight back this fear that overtakes him and the lie that he was all alone. Maybe it's good to have this here so we don't elevate Elijah too highly. And we remember that Elijah is just like you and me, according to the Apostle Paul. 1 Kings 18.23 Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut into pieces and put it on the wood but not set it on fire. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. I can imagine the prophets of Baal and Ahab were already making excuses, but something comes over the people, and it's the beginning of the fear of the Lord, and a new zeal that they're going to see on display. The acceptance of the contest was not by the prophets of Baal, but by the people. 1 Kings 18.24 Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull and and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from the morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy, traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention. Gotta laugh at Elijah's directness and boldness and humor and almost mocking behavior. And I love how it says they shouted and no one answered. They shouted, danced, slashed themselves with swords to get their God's attention. And they prophesied in their demonic tongues. Elijah said, maybe your God is thinking, busy, traveling, sleeping, or must be woken up. And the Bible just nails it though at the very end. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention. 
1 Kings 18.30 Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he prepared the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descending from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. Powerful. No one could accuse him later of rigging it. He dumped precious water onto the sacrifices and dug a trench and filled it with water. He also engaged the people to help, and as they did, they became temporary priests participating in the sacrifice. Three times they poured water on the sacrifice. Get ready. It's all going to happen really fast at this point. Here we go. 1 Kings 18.36 At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people may know that you, Lord, are God, that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. The reaction of the people was extreme zeal of the Lord. Got to picture this scene to fully understand it. Elijah's faith must be incredible. He knew what was going to happen. He was irritated he had to put up with the Baal worship in front of him. He was ready to, for this to end, but he purposely drew in the people for maximum effect. After all this, this was all for the people. Then he calls down fire. The fireball from heaven must have just burned away their unbelief. Note how the fire licked up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and even the water in the trench. The sheer heat required for this to happen must have been incredible. Call this a supernatural fire, then almost like a vacuum tomb fire. It pulled up everything. A whirlwind fire. The people's reaction was and could have been nothing else but worship. And see what happens? There must have been an impartation as well. For a zeal overtook him to do something about these idol-worshipping priests. 1 Kings 18.39 When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. That's what you heard. Upon Elijah's command, the people slaughtered the prophets. The awed, overwhelmed, exhausted Baal prophets couldn't fight back. In the same place, Sisera was defeated by Barak and Deborah. The prophets of Baal met their end. Upon the dry riverbed, as a consequence of the drought, the false prophet's blood was spilt. Ahab is watching all of this. The power of God and the agreement with the people caused Ahab to sit back and do nothing. For fear of him losing his power or his life to God and this people, Elijah now speaks to Ahab. 1 Kings 
And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Ahab probably looks to the sky, sees no clouds, and sees his dead prophets, and does nothing, for he didn't know what to do as Elijah climbs to the top of the mountain. At the top of the mountain, Elijah prays, bent down to the ground with his face between his knees. He has a servant of sort with him now, and Elijah tells him to look toward the sea. He goes and returns and sees nothing. Elijah prays again and tells him to go back and look again. He returns and says he sees nothing. He prays again and tells him to go back. The servant runs down the hill, looks out of the sea. He sees nothing. He goes back to Elijah, and Elijah says, Go and look towards the sea. This happens seven total times. See, Elijah had already heard the sound of heavy rain. God had already told him the drought was going to end. There just needed a breakthrough in prayer. Seven times he prayed. 1 Kings 18.44 The seventh time the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. This was enough for Elijah. One cloud in three years. The drought is over. 1 Kings 18.44 So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Ahab hadn't left yet, but he finally does, but not fast enough for the storm was coming. 1 Kings 18.45 Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So like before, when a heavenly battle occurred in the same location, the rains came. Previously, Sisera's army was destroyed by the Lord, Barak, and a flood. Now his heavenly armies lorded over this event, ending with the miracles, wonders, and the death of the demonic prophets, and the end to the drought. In this case, a near violent storm comes in and washes the blood of the false prophets away. Not even their bodies and their blood remained on now the holy mountain of Mount Carmel. All right, so did you notice that earlier, that Elijah caught Ahab's chariot? That's what it said. Now, a couple things could have happened. The, the rain could have hit, and his chariot was slowed down. He was able to run past him. But other commentaries really agree that it says that he outran the chariot. This happens in the book of Acts with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's not unheard of, but it's extremely rare when the Lord overtakes a person and empowers them to run at an extreme pace. Keep in mind, Elijah's a skinny, malnourished, long-haired prophet. He's had probably little in regards to track star skills or athletic skills. He's going to pull off this last of miracles, but it's going to cost him physically. 17 miles from Carmel to Jezreel, he outran a chariot. Incredible miracle of miracles to top it all off. Fire fell on Moses' sacrifice, David's sacrifice, and Solomon's sacrifice. And now in front of all the people, in dramatic fashion, fire fell on Elijah's sacrifice. Let's end this episode with a peek behind the veil. In the heavenlies, we have to picture it. 
There must have been silencing of heavenly powers. God must have truly ruled over this event. Angels in accompaniment surrounding the mountain, a binding of any and all evil. It's no wonder the false prophets went so far as to cut themselves. Their demons could not speak or function under the angelic sword point in the spirit, nor could they do anything. All spiritual darkness was bound. Could it be Elijah walked around Mount Carmel dozens of times knowing this was the place prior to the event, and he prayed down God's presence and power and prayer walked the mountain continually until he felt the scene was sufficiently prayer covered and ready for this moment? Could it be Elijah had this plan for years and prayer walked the mountain every week for years? It's a cool thought that he covered this mountain in prayer and prayer walked it for years until this event. Now was the time. Darkness was bound. The evil prophets achieved nothing. And Elijah stepped forth and declared with great power what God already had in mind to do. Send fire, Lord. And like a tongue of fire, the flames came and licked up the entirety of the sacrifice. The stones, yes, the stones, and licked up the water in the trench. The fire came with such force and wealth of presence, the people were nearly converted instantly. The supernatural fire came with more than just heat and elements of burning. It came with zeal and power in God's presence. God would later tell Elijah that he had over 7,000 prophets set aside in northern Israel. Many of them were possibly converted on this very day, at this very moment when fire from heaven visited them. I get the take even Elijah didn't fathom the mass conversion that was taking place at this moment before his eyes. More happened in this scene than we realize. There was an outpouring of the Spirit, mass conversion, and the throwing down of a principality. One of the references to Baal was that he's the god of rain or harvest. God sending a famine and canceling out the rains was an indictment of their powerless god and a sign and a wonder of the true power of the one true god. Elijah goes to the mountaintop to call down the rains, and after three years of no rain, little evangelism, little conversions, little moving of the Spirit outside of the prophets, a downpour of the Spirit came, ending the years of the famine. Jezebel and Ahab's rule of terror was over. Their principalities were torn down. They would technically hang on for a while, but even if they tried to get to Elijah, he would call down fire from heaven. There was a prophet in Israel, and God was made manifest, and everyone knew God was all-powerful over every little God. Elijah's miracles over nature, rain, and harvest cycles, the element of burning fire combined with the calling down of rain, the falling down of the zeal of the Lord, mass conversion, and the Olympic record-setting run is none other than incredible. And we end with Elijah's powerful question, and we redirect it to the audience and those out there who need a caramel experience. The question of questions Elijah asked the people was, How long will you waver between two opinions? If it is Baal, then serve him. If it is God, serve him. Serve idols or serve God. The time for serving both always comes to an end. God is ready to display his power to you. And once he displays his power and manifests himself to you, which he promises in the book of Matthew, he says, Seek and you will find, ask and you will receive, knock and the door will be opened to you. Make the bold move to throw down your idols and watch what God will do. 
The people made a bold move upon the revelation of God's power. Their move was the killing of the idol-worshipping Gestapo Baal ruling class in one moment. The Kishon Valley was filled with their blood. When the fire fell, Ezekiel came with them, and a baptism of fire overtook the people, who after being bullied into submission by the Baal prophets, they took their stand and took them down to the valley. The people made a powerful statement that they would serve God. Jezebel would remain in power after this, but it would be tenuous at best. Ahab would control his army, but never again would fear dominate the land like it did before in those days. Upon Mount Carmel, the principality of Baal was overthrown in Israel. Though a Baal temple would remain in Samaria, it would later be burned to the ground. Baal worship was proven to be powerless on this day in Israel. Idols have no power. They have no presence. They are hollow and empty, self-serving and worthless. They only harm the ones who worship them. And we state the question again to anyone on the fence, to anyone walking both sides of the line, anyone who worships idols and God. How long are you going to waver between two opinions? How long will you serve God and idols? Let God reveal himself to you and for him to fill you with his zeal and to take the strongholds in your life and to throw them down and to let the Lord set you aside for him forever. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.